All right. Good morning, church. All right. Thanks. Hey, I'm your lead pastor, Kevin, and it's my birthday. All right. 36 is good. 30, no, that's not true. Not true at all. The big 53. Uh, I love my age. I, love, I have no desire to be any other age. The one thing I desire is when I wake up in the morning for me not to go, oh, wow, that hurts way more than I thought. That's the only thing. That's the only thing. Well, we're so glad you're with us. Um, if you're new, we're in a brand new series this morning. Perfect week for you to join us. We are walking together through the book of James. If you've never studied the book of James, uh, you're in for a treat. He's kind of a straight shooter. We'll see if you think it's a treat. But I do think that this book is not going to be what you think it is. If you've studied James before, perhaps you might uh, see it in a, in a new light, perhaps. Uh, but I want to start off by telling you, back in... Um, 2014, I had the privilege of doing a high school graduation ceremony for a local Christian school, and, and, and the message that I gave to those graduating high school seniors was a message entitled, Our Shoes Matter. And some of you are like, Kevin, we know you like shoes, but that's okay, but our shoes matter. And I told those students that while the, the teachers and the parents and the community leaders, yes, we are proud of them. I also told them that we were quite scared for them. But we were not scared because they were heading off to college. We were not scared because they were maybe heading into the military and they were going to be miles and miles away from home. I told them we were not scared because we thought maybe that they were ill-prepared for life after high school. That wasn't the case. We were not even scared because we thought that they would procrastinate in their studies and they would skip all of those 8 a.m. classes just like we did. <laughs> we weren't scared of that. I told them we were scared for them for a different reason. What was causing us to lose sleep back in 2014 is that the Barner Research Group, Lifeway Research, and even USA Today was reporting that in 2014, up to 75% of graduating seniors of, from, from high school who were attached and active in their local church would walk away from their church and their faith in the next four years. Meaning that if they made it through college with a faith in Jesus Christ, the person on their right and on their left would no longer be following Jesus. And the silence in that room was deafening. And I told them that the answer to the dilemma might be in the shoes they were wearing. Because their shoes said a lot about their faith. Because if their faith is nothing more than bedroom slippers, they have a faith that's never meant to go outside. They have a faith that's simply comfortable. That if their faith was nothing more than flip-flops, it was a faith of convenience. They could slip on or slip off their faith depending on the situation. If their faith was nothing more than dress shoes, while those look great on the outside, that sort of faith is never meant for everyday use because usually dress shoes are only worn when your parents tell you to wear them. And I talked to them about wearing 
baby shoes, about wearing running shoes, about wearing work boots, and more. And each time describing a faith for them that does not endure. And, and after that ceremony, one of the graduating seniors came up to me and said, Kevin, I understand that I need that kind of faith. Kevin, I want that kind of faith. But what does a faith like that look like practically? Kevin, can you tell me specifically how to have a faith like that? And I looked at that young man and said, I cannot, but a guy by the name of James can. Because if you want a faith that strong, if you want a faith that's vibrant, if you want a faith that's going to stand the test of time as you move from one birthday to the next birthday to the next birthday, you need to read a practical guide that's going to give you an impractical faith. A guide that's direct, a guide that's honest, a guide that's straightforward, and it might leave you speechless. And it's going to be a faith, by the way, that the world is going to deem incredibly silly. It's going to be a faith that the world is going to tell you is incredibly unfeasible, a faith that they're going to deem as unrealistic, useless, incompetent, and clueless. It will leave you with an impractical faith. And so if you're new to the book of James, it's a book written by the half-brother of Jesus. Now, just for sympathy's sake, can you imagine growing up as a sibling of Jesus Christ? Because if there's ever a problem at home, whose fault is it? Never that, guys. <laughs> it's never. How annoying would that be? That would be the worst. And in your family, who is everybody being compared to? Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, because he's the savior of the world, mom, right? Isn't that the sort of things you would say? Because that had to be so frustrating. But what's interesting is as the siblings of Jesus aged, apparently they didn't believe that Jesus was who their mom said he was, who their aunt, Elizabeth, said he was. Because John chapter 7 says... After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders, they were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. His brothers are saying, yeah, yeah, you, you should go. Show yourself. What if they're hoping he might get caught? But by the time you get to Acts chapter 1, apparently James and the other siblings believe. And a brother who is not only annoyingly, but perfectly righteous, combined with the supernatural ability to come back from the dead, yeah, righteousness and resurrections will have that effect on you. And, and so not only does James believe, James, along with Peter, become major leaders in the early church. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, start navigating to the book of of James. It's all the way in the back of your Bible, so head all the way 
It's way, 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 way deeper in your Bible. When you, it's after Hebrews, but before 1 Peter. So put something there because we're going to be in it for the next 10 weeks. And as you turn there, I need you to know that if you thought Paul was direct, <laughs> James is cut from the exact same cloth. So many of you know that, that James in the New Testament is a straightforward book, but people usually call it I guess it applies to the New Testament the way the book of Proverbs works with the Old Testament. It's a book full of wisdom. It's a a book full of practical theology. But it's a book filled with imperative commands that you and I are supposed to live out in our Christian life on a day-to-day basis. And that's going to be hard because I need you to know harmony is not one of James' strengths on the Strengths Finder Discovery profile. Yeah, that's not him. He's going to get right to the point, right out of the gate, because he's absolutely passionate about Christians looking different from the world in which they live. And almost everything he's going to share with you is incredibly impractical. See if you agree. James chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. I read that and I thought, that doesn't sound too bad. So far, so good. Pretty easy. But, but hold on a second, because he just told you who the book is written to, and so many times we miss it. We gloss right over it, because what we can tell right here is that the recipients of this le- letter are Jewish but they have converted to Christianity and they've been kicked out of their cities and they're on the run. They're deprived. They're disadvantaged. They're discouraged. These people were relatively new Christians because this is the first century, meaning they were very immature in their faith and they were having a hard time, but they weren't having a hard time because they had to get up for church at 9 a.m. to be at this service. And, and, And they weren't being... Uh, having a hard time because it's a little cool in here because the AC in their sanctuary was blowing too hard. No. It was because they were running for their lives. They had lost their jobs because they had converted to Christianity. They had lost their friends because they had converted to Christianity. Some of them had lost their family members all because of this new faith in Jesus. They had left their schools, they had left their neighborhoods, all to avoid not being made fun of like, nah, 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 nah. No, they're being looked at to kill for their faith. And this new faith of theirs was not nearly as easy as they probably thought it was going to be. It was costing them literally everything. And it got me thinking that that maybe this has happened to some of us as well. I remember leading a young man to faith in Jesus Christ at my last church. I was was so happy for him. The next morning when I got to church, his mom was waiting for me as I pulled into the church parking lot. I got out of my car. I walked to the door. She's walking straight for me. I put up my hand because I'm going to give her a high five because her son just came to know Jesus Christ. She did not put up her hand to high five me. She was not happy. Her first words out of her mouth were, what have you done to my son? And I'm, 
You know, <laughs> you're doing that. She left me hanging. She was not a Christian. No one in her family had ever been a Christian. And now her son was one. And over the next several years, his mom, his grandfather, his uncle, his sister, all made it very, very hard on that young man, all because of his faith. And maybe some of you, when you put your faith in Christ, you realize that life didn't get easier. It's not as easy as you maybe thought it was going to be. Maybe you thought that when you placed your faith in Christ that maybe, you know, uh, because you're serving the very creator of the universe, maybe you thought maybe your health was going to improve. Maybe you thought, hey, I'm serving the one who saves and redeems and recreates and restores. Maybe you thought my marriage was going to get better. Maybe you thought your financial situation was going to get better. Maybe you thought that tragedy and pain would stay far away from you. I mean, you'd get a little bit, but you wouldn't get a lot of it. And, and that honestly, because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the people in your world, they're going to look at you, and they're going to love you, and they're going to respect you, and, and you're going to be happy only to find out shortly after. It's quite the opposite. Maybe for you, life got very difficult after you accepted Christ. All of these trials and all these difficulties just seem to come out of nowhere. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, probably the same thing the recipients of this letter were thinking. I really don't get this, God. I mean, like, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. The only one who can save, the one who created me. And suddenly, it seems like my entire world has been turned upside down. And the Temptation in that moment is to come to the conclusion that maybe God's forgotten about me. That maybe God's lied to me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I've done something and God is judging me by putting me through these difficult trials and tribulations. And much like the recipients of this letter, we begin to ask the question, why is life so difficult following Jesus? And why am I seeing other people who don't follow Jesus flourish in their life? But for me, everything, God, everything seems to be stripped away. And so what James does here is he helps these troubled Christians see life through a different lens. He gives them a different perspective. Verse 1 through verse 4, he is going to look at us and say, Church, change your perspective. Because new creations don't have old perspectives. New creations have new perspectives. And to the world... We're supposed to have very impractical perspectives. And in verse 2, we're going to see our very first impractical command. Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now tell me that's not different than everything the world says. Consider it pure joy, all right? Pure joy when you face trials of, your Bible might say, of various kinds. Now, can I see a show of hands in this room real quick? Of the people in this room that have never experienced any trials or any difficulty of any kind. Can I see a show of hands? Perfect. So unless you're like 
under the age of five, or maybe you're dead and you're here, you've had difficulty in your life. You've had trials in your life. And, and so as long as you're potty trained, right, you've had some trials. You've had some struggles. You've had some real difficulties. And here's what's strange about this verse. James didn't say, if you're going to have trials. He says, when you're going to have trials. Yay for James, right? He says, when you have trials. That's way different because trials and difficulties are a part of God's economy and there's no exemption course for that. There's no way to clep out of trials and difficulties. Trials and difficulties are a fact of life. He says they're going to happen. And if you notice the word, your Bible says many, or it might say the word various, do you know what that means? He says you're not going to face just one thing. You're going to face lots of things. The word actually gets translated plentiful. You're going to have plentiful trials. and plent just a, You're going to have a full bounty of difficulties in your life. It means difficulties and trials are going to come in multiple forms, at multiple times, and they might come like a huge flood and will seemingly consume you that you can't escape them. In fact, he says, whenever you face trials, the original language means um, to walk into, which means you're walking down the road, minding your own business, and you just bump into them. I don't know if you've ever been to Times Square, and you're walking, every person's like a different trial. You know, you're just bumping into people left and right. That's how trials apparently are going to come. You don't even have to go looking for them. They're going to find you. They're right in front of you. So James says when you walk into a whole multitude of trials, here's how Christians are supposed to view these trials. He says, consider it pure joy. I said, pure joy? Doesn't that make you want to sort of puke? Or laugh? Or for some of you, use foul language, right? You know, that's what it kind of makes you want to do. Pure joy, are you kidding me? Because that sounds a little impractical or maybe some of you would say that sounds a little insane because obviously this guy has to be single right he, he must have no kids and he must have no job because that's the only way you write things like this or maybe he's on some psychotropic medicine because why else would you say because what kind of person looks at you in the middle of the trials and difficulties you're going through and says, hey man, I know you're going through a difficult time right now, but be joyful, enjoy it. Like who says that and doesn't get punched? <laughs> I mean, think about that. What does that even look like? It's, hey, hey guys, guess what? I've got prostate cancer. It's phenomenal. I mean, seriously, you should try it. Enjoy I'm just having a great time with it says no one whatsoever, or someone comes into your office and you're counseling someone who just lost a loved one, and you go to them and say, listen, I know you just lost a family member, but that's such a good thing. Man, that's so great. Enjoy it. What is he even talking about? That sounds crazy. But maybe we just don't understand this passage yet. Because if you notice in verse 2, it doesn't say act joyous in the moment that you encounter trials. That's not what it says. It says 
consider this trial with joy. Evaluate this difficulty with joy. Look at it through the lens or through the perspective of joy. Because James is not speaking about emotion here. And he's certainly not writing off what you feel when trials come your way. He knows full well that many times when trials come our way, they hurt. And they hurt bad. And they leave lasting scars. And sometimes it feels like it rains and 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 it rains. Some of you in this room have had the most horrific 2023 that anybody can even imagine. James is not writing off the emotion of the pain and the grief that you go through. He's not saying, don't act in grief, instead act in joy. He's saying, Christians, you need to consider the way you view the trial you're in. It must be viewed through a different lens than the way the world views trials and difficulties. Because James is trying to rewire us. He's trying to make sure we don't allow our minds to conclude that at the end of our difficulty, at the end of our trial, is nothing but despair and hopelessness. Because when you're in the middle of it, that's all you see. For Christians, trials are designed to bring our sights upward and off ourselves and off the people around us and certainly off the situation. See, these early Christians that had their entire lives turned upside down, their conclusion was, well, I've been taught that God is good. I even prayed it every night before a meal. God is great. God is good. I prayed it. And that, that difficulties are bad, so therefore God has either forgotten about me, or God doesn't care about me, and that's why I'm going through what I'm going through. Or worse yet, maybe God isn't as holy and as good as I thought he was. Because what kind of good God would allow me to go through something as hard and difficult as this? Because he's writing to a group of people that had those kind of assumptions. And James simply says, if that is your first response to trials and difficulties then you might not fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor do you understand how God uses trials and difficulties in the life of a Christian. Church, this verse right here might be the most theological verse in the entire book. It's maybe for sure in the chapter. Why? Because James is essentially saying here that for Christians... When trials and difficulties come your way, you can confuse the whole world because you believe something is true about God that the rest of the world does not. You know something that actually gives you hope even in the midst of horrific circumstances. And that thing you know is in verse 3. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Your Bible might say endurance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That word tested actually means proved. That it's validating that what I confess to be true about God is actually true 
when the wheels of my life fall off. Because we can confess anything when life's going awesome. But when the wheels fall off, then we'll know something. Uh, think back to our series in the, in the book of Matthew. Uh, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. That's a great miracle, but that moment was set up not for the people that were fed. It was set up for the disciples to teach them about trust in Jesus. Because at that point in their lives, the disciples could only think about what they had or what they didn't have. That's how they thought. But here's what's interesting. Immediately following the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat, go across the lake, and he's going to go up on a mountain and pray. And while he's praying, they're out on the lake, and a storm comes up, difficulties, trials come up, and it starts shaking that boat, and it's about to sink, and they're freaking out, and they're fearful for their lives. Jesus comes walking out on the water. And it says that this whole storm thing was a test to see if the disciples really learned anything about trust. Because there's classroom knowledge about trust. And then there's your actual real world experience with trust. And for the disciples, they thought they understood trust. But when the storm came, they're freaking out. And that test help prove or validate or invalidate their profession in Jesus Christ and their trust in him. You see, God is in the business of making sure that our worship of Christ is not just in theory. That, that my faith is just not theoretical. And the truth is, he will use whatever means possible to develop something within us that's very, very precious, even if it means using trials and difficulties to do so. James is helping those Christians and these Christians to view difficult seasons and painful moments as something that is beautifully shaping us into something that reflects his glory and reflects his goodness and his power and, and, and how personal God he is in a world that sees him as anything but. And he does it by calling our sights upward. See, because according to verse 3, these trials and difficulties are producing endurance, it says. It's producing in us perseverance in us. The word perseverance means to abide. It actually means to cling to with all of your might, because if you let go, you might drown. It's the idea to trust over the long haul, over a long period of time. James says that one of the purposes of trials is to bring you to a place where you can trust God in a whole new category in which you've never trusted him before. It's to get you to cling to Christ in such a way that it'll take you down the road of making you mature. It will make you complete so that you lack nothing. That's both the power and the beauty of difficulties and trials in our life. See, it's funny, most Christians have Romans 8, 28 memorized. And I don't totally know why. I mean, it's a great verse, don't get me wrong, but we, we all know it, right? For we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We always think that when someone has a difficult time. But we never want to say it to them because it, we might get punched in the throat, right? Because that sounds really bad if someone's going through a trial and you go, you know, God works together all things for good. You know, you're like, 
Get away from me. Because, but it's interesting, Christians don't memorize the next verse because the question you have to ask is, well, what's his purpose? That's what I need to know. What's his purpose? The next verse says, for, God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, trials are meant to mature us into the likeness of Christ. They're designed to help us look more like Jesus every day in every way. Trials and difficulties are one of the ways that God brings us to a place of trusting in him by chipping away at the things that don't look like Christ. It's funny, they ask Michelangelo, how can you take that chunk of granite and make that into David? And Michelangelo replied, that chunk of granite already is David. I'm just taking away that which should not be. And that's sort of what trials do to us. In a way, they become kind of God's divine chisel that helps wean us from attitudes and characteristics that don't necessarily project the proper image of Christ. And when this happens, we begin to view trials through faith and with joy and not with disappointment and despair. It's funny, he spent the first four four verses talking to us about a perspective change. But what I love, he makes it very easy on preachers because starting in verse 5, he shifts and says, okay, now that your perspective has changed, I'm going to tell you how to respond. Because knowing something and, and actually living something are two very different things. Because in the midst of pain, in the midst of trials and difficulties, what do, what do we do? God, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this immense pain. Kevin, when will the hopelessness ever go away? What am I to do? Because it feels like I'm never, ever going to get over what's happened to me. And that's verse 5. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously or gives lavishly to all, not most, to all, without finding fault. And it will, not might, it will be given to you. And that word wisdom is one of the most annoying words for me in the Bible because I like to know things. It actually means God's enigmatic or mysterious ways. It means he knows something that I don't, and I don't like that. I got no amens on that, okay? <laughs> Apparently I'm the only one that, that's irritated that, that I don't know what God knows. Because I want to know. I want to know what's going on. Because in God's economy, it's weird how things seem backwards. Right? Because it says, hey, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's exactly opposite of what we're taught. Or he says, hey, you know what? If, if you want to be exalted, then you've got to be humbled. Well, that seems backwards. If you want to be strong, then you need to become weak. That sounds backwards. If you want to look beautiful, then you need to turn inward to how God sees you and not outward as how man sees you. It's almost the complete opposite of how we view things. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter 11, he talks about the gospel. He shares the gospel. And then he says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. You see, when you find yourself in a trial and you have no idea what to do, 
The first way to respond is to appeal to the wisdom of God. Because you can't figure it out. Know why? You've already tried. Because every guy in the room, the first thing we do is fix it. It's why our wives don't want to talk to us. Because they say something to me, and I've solved it before she's even finished speaking. Just stop speaking, and I'll tell you how to fix it. Right? <laughs> the guys don't want to laugh because they're getting elbowed right now. Right? We know, we know how this works. We've tried to fix it. Lord knows we've tried. So while we may not know, he says, why don't you just ask for his wisdom? Ask him. Because he gives lavishly. He gives generously. One of the many reasons why trials are in our lives is to bring us to our knees, to a place of trust, where you and I begin to pray prayers like, God, I don't know why any of this is happening to me. God, I don't have a clue what's going on, and I certainly don't have a clue about what to do next. And God, why now? Why? But God, I trust you. I know you're good. And your boy needs some help. In the midst of this, could, could you show me how to respond, God? Can you carry me as I move through this? Because I'm not sure I'm going to make it. That's a prayer of trust and dependence. That's a prayer of faith of someone wearing a different pair of shoes. And what's interesting, whenever you start at church and you say, pray, everyone's like, oh. I'll pray for it, you know, you sure. You know, yes, we're supposed to pray for it, yes. But he says, how you pray matters, because he says, pray with trust and expectancy. And here's the next section. We really get out of whack. It's verse 6, because James says, but when you ask, when you pray here, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Because on most days, I tell the world I doubt this much, but inside I doubt this much. And if that's the case, and I'm supposed to pray, then apparently I'm not supposed to get, I'm not going to get anything. So praying then is a waste of time. And I would say, hold on a second. Let's, let's look at this a different way, because what James is actually doing, you're going to love this, he's calling you a child. He's calling you a toddler. He's calling you an infant. I'll put it like this. How many of you dads in here have ever tried to teach your child what it means to trust you in a swimming pool? You take your son or daughter, you put them on the edge of the pool, and you get in that water, and you put your arms out, and you look at them, and you say, good. No dad in here goes, and good luck with that. <laughs> right? We, don't, we put our arms out. Jump. Jump. I've got you. Just jump, and I'll catch you. But what is your child thinking in that moment? They're looking at you, looking at that water. They got their toe out, kind of doing this in the water. Or they start putting one foot out, they put their arms out like this, and they start acting like they're jumping, but they're actually not jumping. You know, they're sort of reaching out, but they haven't done anything, and, and you're going, jump. They're doing everything except jumping. Why? Because they are double-minded, and they are torn. They're being tossed back and forth as to what they believe is true about you, and what they 
believe to be true about their circumstances. And so they sit on the edge of the pool, and they're looking at you, and they want both. They want to experience the thrill of that jump, but they're petrified about the water because of what the water can do to them. And so dads, what are you doing? I'm hoping you're not looking at them going, fine, where's your mother? You know what, that's not a good sign. Most dads look back at the child and go, trust me, I've got you. I'm going to catch you. You need to stop believing in what you think and what you feel. Don't think about what you believe to be true about the water and what you think about me. Trust me, I'm not going to drop you. Jump. And in God's pool of divine trials, you can't have both. Because you can't sit in the midst of that trial trying to trust God while at the same time not trusting him. He says if you're going to ask, don't be like the kid on the side of the pool because trust grows in the jump. If you stay on the side of the pool, the best thing that's going to happen is you're going to sit on the side of the pool that day and fluff your feet around, and you're going to wrestle on the inside the rest of the day. You're going to live in fear the rest of the day, and you're going you're gonna to live groveling and regretting of what could have been. In the same way, God says, when you're struggling, trust me. Trust me because I'm good. Trust me, because I don't drop people. Jump. God's intent in the darkest hour of your life is that you would fully cling to him, fully trust him, knowing that he is good and that he's going to carry you through. And look at verse 9. James says, it feels like he takes a really hard shift here. Like all of a sudden it's like, why are we talking about something else? Did we change subjects? But he doesn't. James says, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And you're like, how do we get to money? Because when difficulties and trials come our way, you want to know where we turn? We go to money first. Because for too many people, that's our God. And he's going, what are you doing? Like, you belong to Christ. You know that, right? Money doesn't save. You might think money fixes things. It's nothing compared to me. Wealth isn't what makes you rich. It's your faith in my son Jesus Christ. That's what makes you rich. So be very careful that your wealth doesn't become your savior. Because the blessings that you have in Christ can't be taken from you, and they're overwhelming. So don't look to the riches to be your Savior. And that's verse 10, because he flips it in verse 10. And he says, those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. I watch way too much college game day on Saturdays. And behind the backdrop there is always the university that they're at. And on every building on a university campus is somebody's name. Somebody paid for that building. And where is that person most likely today? Pushing up daisies in some field somewhere that nobody knows. They faded away. 
He says, don't find your, your faith. Don't look for your joy and riches because you're not going to have them that long and, and you're not going to be able to take them with you. You may think that you're never going to lose your stocks and your bonds, but your stocks and bonds will lose you. They're not going to go anywhere. You were. <laughs> you better figure this out. Because James is saying, hey, rich or poor, you're both going through difficult times. And you need to rejoice in that situation because God is doing something amazing in you and it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Contrary to popular belief. It's not based on money. Because the assumption is, if you look at the text, the assumption is these people had money, but when they fled because of persecution, they lost it all. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They, lost, they had to get out of Dodge or they're going to be killed. So they had something. Now they don't have something, and they're in the midst of a trial and difficulties, and they don't know what to do because money's not the answer. The answer is found in your trials because your trials point you to Christ. Tell me that's not impractical. Clinging to Christ, place your hope and your trust in Christ, is impractical in our world. But do you know what I find so fascinating about people? I actually tried it in the lobby this morning before the 8.30 service. I want you to go to anybody that you think is a mature Christian. Find someone in your life that is a mature Christian. And you ask them the moment in their life that their faith grew the most. I think every single one of them is going to tell you that their trials were some of the most defining moments in their life. That that's when their faith grew the most. They're not going to say, oh, it's the day I was blessed. Right? It's not on the happy days or the proud days. No, it was in their desperate moments, their deep, dark moments, because it was in those moments that everything got stripped away and there was nothing else they could trust in. Their money wasn't going to solve it. There was nothing that's going to solve it but Christ. There is nothing else that could pull them through except Jesus Christ. And you need to boast in that, James is saying, because that's worth everything. That can't be taken from you. That is what is giving you the ability to live the impractical life. And so we started with verses 1 through 5. He says, this is the theological shift. This is the perspective change you need to have. In verses 5 through 11, he says, this is the response you should have. And what I love is in verse 12, he says, this is the result if you'll do it. I love, this makes preaching so easy for me. Verse 12 said, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Do you see the guidance that James is giving us here? James is saying, let me practically tell you how to do something that the world around you is going to tell you is very impractical. Hey, Christian, trials and difficulties are not some cosmic accident or, or some God that's puppeteering evil in your life. The trials and difficulties in your life, they can be seen with a perspective of, of joy, even though painful and even though difficult. Why? Because God is using them in ways that you can't even fathom. In ways that are beyond your understanding, to bring about in you a perseverance. Because what he's doing is he's bringing about in you a patience and, a, and, and an endurance, a faith that lasts over the long haul of your life. And these difficulties, they are refining you. And they are shaping you. 
And they were growing you and changing you so that you have what it takes to glorify Him every single day of your life until He returns or takes you home. And when you get home, He's going to reward you in a place where there's no more tears, in a place where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering. That's good stuff. Church, if you want a practical guide to an impractical life, here it is. I mean, buckle up, right? But, but here it is. By the way, he didn't say, I didn't say to you, it's not an easy guide, just to be clear. This is going to be an easy series, but it's going to be very, very practical. James has a lot to say to us that just might change your life forever.